Super Talk Mississippi media production. Are you tired of dents and scratches ruining the look of your car? Look no further than Porter's Body Shop in Brookhaven. Call us at 601-833-1861 or visit us online at portersbodyshopms.com. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that celebrates the men and women who are making coastal Mississippi such a great place to live, work, and play. Hey, look, every now and then we take a bit of a diversion from our normal Coast View topics. Today we're actually going to talk about truth and journalism and I've got a very special guest that's going to join me here in just a second. But I've, you know, I'm an ex-news guy, so uh, you can't have been a publisher for 15, 16 years like I was, and not have a lot of news sources that you pay attention to on any given morning. So I still wake up at 3:30, 4:30 every morning, and I have a bunch of different news sources that I pay attention to. I got a bunch of different newsletters that help aggregate news and bring it to me, so I can make sure that I'm not missing something that's really important. I came across a quote this morning that I thought was the perfect setup for the conversation that we're about to have, and it was uh, it was a it was a quote by uh, Winston Churchill. And incidentally, it was uh, he was. Was born in November of 1874. So there was a note about celebrating his birthday, and it had this quote with it. And here's the quote. It's a little bit. It's it's, it's a little bit complicated. I think when you just hear it for the first time. But I'm going to break it down for you. Here it is. Truth is in incontrovert. Excuse me. Truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it. Malice may distort it. But there it is. That's Winston Churchill. So let me let me break it down for you just a little bit. So in saying truth is incontrovertible, what, what Churchill is saying is that truth cannot be denied or disputed. Okay, truth is truth. He said that panic may resent it. Now, essentially what he's saying is that when you get the truth, it may create significant concern or it could even cause panic. It's, it's very possible, actually, that the truth you hear you're not going to like. But that's the, that's one of the qualities of truth. He said that ignorance may deride it, and I'm sure that Winston Churchill was concerned about people who were not, you know, knowledgeable or who not not informed. He he may have even been concerned about those who were li- were working to sort of um, uh, change the truth or or use some version of the truth to their advantage. In fact, I'll say it, propaganda was a thing back in those days, and Churchill himself actually used propaganda uh, to create uh, a problem with morale with the enemy that they were fighting. But I've often said that democracy, for democracy to be viable, you have to have an informed electorate, you have to have an informed citizenry, and this is something we talk about on this show all the time. Um, Okay, so anyway... There are some people who don't want to know the truth. <laughs> I can't help but think about uh, Jack Nicholson's character in the movie All, A Few Good Men when he said to Tom Cruise's character in, in the courtroom scene, you may remember it, that you can't handle the truth, he says to Tom Cruise's can't, uh, uh, character. I also think about German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who's famous for saying that that which does not kill us makes us stronger. He said this. He's a German philosopher, 
and this is this is an old quote that applies as much today as it ever has. Sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. Think about that. They don't want their illusions destroyed. Um, anyway, do you know someone like that? <laughs> I think I do. Churchill says that malice will distort the truth. And that line, I think he's essentially saying that people will intentionally, very intentionally distort the truth for whatever means you know, they're, they're, they're seeking. Um, we see that a lot these days. And he ends the quote with that very simple statement. But there it is. Short and sweet. There it is. And what he means is that the truth is an accurate expression of fact or reality. Truth is the opposite of falsehood. Truth is truth. So let me read it one last time since, since I uh, gave you sort of the breakdown. Truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may decide it. May, excuse me, may deride it. Malice may distort it. But there it is, Winston Churchill. What a powerful quote to kind of start the conversation today. As I said, this is going to be another Coast View uh, diversion and we're going to talk a lot about truth today, the role responsible journalism plays in helping to keep democracy viable. And who's going to be joining me today? My friend Jim Asher. Uh, Jim, and we'll, we'll talk about how we know each other here in just a second. But he's retired. and He's working on a book project. He's a veteran investigative news journalist. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning editor. Uh, he was the national investigative editor for Knight Ritter. That's the company that used to own the Sun-Herald. He led the Washington Bureau from the McClatchy Company, the company that actually bought the Sun-Herald uh, company, Knight Ritter, in, in 2006. Under his leadership, he set a standard for independence in Washington, winning numerous national awards for journalistic excellence. In 2017, he shared a Pulitzer for his work on global Panama Papers document leak about offshore tax uh, havens. In addition, he managed uh, and edited four other projects that were uh, finalists for Pulitzer, both two for McClatchy and two for The Sun. Since leaving McClatchy, he worked on, for the Injustice Watch, a nonprofit uh, focused on criminal justice reform, and for several months helped the Associated Press with his coverage of the Mueller investigation of President Donald Trump. So he has uh, he has seen it in his day as a reporter. Speaking of truth, this is the the one important point I want to mention about Jim that he has a guiding philosophy, and that is this: the more you look closely, the more you find a bigger truth. And there is no, there's been no better and more important time to to think in that way than today. Welcome to Coach View, Jim. How you doing, my friend? Thanks. Thanks for having me. I look forward to our chat. Hey, listen, when I was uh, remembering that you were here after Hurricane Katrina, uh, there was one moment after Hurricane Katrina, what I asked uh, uh, Wanda Howe and the team to do when people came here from from other Knight Ritter newspapers, I wanted to see them. I wanted to say hello to them. And when they left, I wanted to say goodbye to them and thank them for being there. And at one moment, I said, how many people are here from Knight Ritter? How many people are in Biloxi right now from Knight Ritter? The answer was 67. 67. Does that, does that number blow your mind, Jim? It does. Uh, although it, it wasn't surprising to me. Knight, Knight Ritter had a passion for, for uh, sort of being a good family of journalists. And when there was a need somewhere... It dispatched people from all over the country to help out. And that's certainly what happened in, in Biloxi after Katrina. 
they, they were remarkable. And I was lucky enough to be able to be part of that. You were one of the ones who joined us. I I, uh, I was looking back at that time, and and when we were awarded a, a gold medal Pulitzer Prize for public service, the very first congratulatory message was from you. Is that right? And you said I ran across. I, I said you said this. Um, it's uh, it's something. Let's hang on a minute. Let me get to the. Uh, hang on a minute. minute. Uh, okay, here it is. Congrats. For a well-deserved honor, your journalism and your diligence to getting the stories stand as an example to all in our business. I'm so happy for you. And you meant it. You got to see it with your own eyes, didn't you? I did, absolutely. One of the things that has, it's been an enduring memory, my visit to uh, the Gulf Coast after Katrina. And I very regularly talk about you and our conversations about how that storm happened. But the thing that was, was uh, to me, sort of, um, surprising was the resilience that the, that you all on that coast had. There was there was a lot of of tears when I was down there. A lot of people were really shook by what had happened, but you could also see a determination among you all to, to bring it back. Yeah, back better. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I remember this really profound moment, and there are so many profound moments, but. Uh, one of our photographers uh, took it on himself to to rent an airplane, and uh, he flew over the coast in a restricted airspace and took thousands of photographs and brought them back, and they were on a laptop, and this is like a day or two after the Katrina, and uh, I was sitting there looking at these photos, and we were all looking at the photo, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. We were all just... You know, it was overwhelming. We had all been, you know, sleepless, you know, many sleepless nights. Uh, so many of us had harrowing experiences during the storm itself. And uh, while we were in the moment of looking at these photographs, Tony Ritter and Art Brisbane enters the room. Tony Ritter, the CEO, and, and, and Art Brisbane, the former publisher of the Kansas City Star that was also a vice president of operations for, for Knight Ritter, and at the time, my boss, they walk into the room, and um, and that's the moment they, they, they saw what the real impact was going to be. I was amazed they got there so quickly. I mean, they got there in, in, in many ways, and they were very resourceful in the way they got there, but... Um, you know, think think about about our old friend uh, uh, Brian Monroe and how you know he found his way here the day after the storm. But um, man, it was a great company to work for. There's no doubt about it. And uh, it's unfortunate that time has has passed in the way that it has, and that the digital tsunami has taken over newspapers the way that it has. And that's that's what you and I are going to chat about here in just a second. But before we get into the digital tsunami part, when we come back from break. I want to talk just a little bit about what I, how I started the show, talking about the importance of truth and uh, how powerful that, that, that quote is from Winston Churchill and how you've literally dedicated your life to truth and finding the truth. And we'll, we'll talk more about that when we come back from break. This is Jim Asher, Pulitzer Prize winning editor, and we'll continue the conversation on the other side. Live or on demand, and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. 
His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. Listen, uh, I can't be a former media executive, former publisher of a newspaper, and not have occasional conversations, serious conversations about media. And if you're a regular listener, you've heard that I've had uh, two or three conversations with with, uh, a colleague that I used to work with in New Orleans, James O'Byrne. Uh, he became uh, the vice president of innovation for the company that I led over at uh, at NOLA Media Group. And uh, he was uh, a multiple Pulitzer Prize winning editor and writer. And, and he now lives in France. And we, you know, I love spending time with him because we, we both have been there during some of the most trying times for our industry. And uh, and we both sort of lament what is not there anymore. And and we also talk about, hopefully, what might, might, might be in the future. And I've been looking forward to this conversation with Jim Asher. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning editor. He's a former colleague as well. He spent time at the Sun-Herald uh, on behalf of Nate Ritter coming to our aid after after uh, Hurricane Katrina, got to know our community and the people who were covering the storm at the time. And uh, we've stayed in touch through Facebook and I've watched his career. And man, you've had a you've had a heck of a career, Jim, haven't you? I have. I have. It all began in my hometown newspaper. <laughs> Isn't that something? As we, as we uh, just passed the uh, the moment when we're celebrating or remembering John F. Kennedy's assassination, it occurred to me that that, that event, I was still a young, uh, early high school kid at the time, but um, it's what get, it planted the seed of journalism for me because my dad was a newspaper guy. On the day Kennedy was shot, what did I do? I went down to the newspaper and watched the newsroom react to the assassination, read the wires, saw the 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 crazy kind of uh, events that were unfolding down in Dallas. And it sort of, it, it hit a, it hit a chord and it's, yeah. it, you know, it's been, a, it, it's been a remarkable time to be a journalist. You've been involved in some extraordinary stories, stories around war, stories around politics, stories around, you know, even Donald Trump specifically. But what I admired, I said this to you um, during the break or before we started the show, is that you weren't you weren't guided by uh, political differences or sort of a political philosophy. You were you were guided by finding the truth. And uh, you, I don't know if you were you were surprised that I read that the, the, this philosophy that you have. The more you look closely, the more you find a bigger truth. But you built a career around that, didn't you? Absolutely, and it was. I don't know. It must be my Irish heritage, you know, the need to be a poet in life. So I decided journalism was going to be the place I was going to spend some time. And the the more you the more you talk to people, and that's really what journalism is all about to me, the more you talk to people, the more you realize that everybody has a true story to tell. And what has happened over the course of the decades and more recently in the last five or six or seven years is that uh, journalists and politicians only want to hear what they want to hear. So they don't listen to what people are saying. And sort of the root, uh, to me, the root of this discord we're having about truth is because people weren't paying attention. 
They were yeah. attention to the trials and tribulations of everyday life that people were experiencing. They weren't paying attention to the failures of government to actually try to do something for people. So, you know, once folks give one political party or the other enough time to fix things and they don't, then they get disgruntled. And the more disgruntled you get, the more you turn to people who promise you things, which may or may not come true. Well, look at the base of this conversation. I said at the beginning, but I used to give speeches before Katrina. It talked about how newspapers, this First Amendment obligation that we had was so important to helping keep the democracy viable. And I always thought when I said that, that it sounded kind of like a textbook thing, you know, it, it, sound, it sounded like a, a statement you would make about history or so on, but, you know, how true is it? But I, as a publisher, I knew that it was incredibly important and very true. And it was after Hurricane Katrina that I, that I watched communities wrestle with making so many important decisions about whether to rebuild or not to rebuild and all these things. And I, I saw the role the newspaper played in providing sort of a, a new information, new context, uh, you know, the debates that were taking place. Uh, I thought it was so important that we all do go out of our way to share all sides to a story, because if we've done that and we've done that well, then it's going to provide people the kind of information they need to choose for themselves what they needed to do or what they wanted to do. It, it would help them decide in the future who they voted for, et cetera. But, but it was so important that object, the objectivity around sharing that data and information was critical. But that's at the basis of journalism, isn't it? It absolutely is. And, you know, in some ways, the, the more diligent that we were or are about finding the truth, the more we connect our communities, because the more value people give to what work we do and the more value that they see in what they read and they they get the feeling that this is not a, a partisan, biased, unfair assessment of life, the more they want to the more they buy it, the more they do right, it. Right, right, right. So I, look, uh, I, was doing, I, I was doing some some fun family research a few uh, weeks ago, and I went to newspapers.com, and I searched my hometown newspaper for my grandfather's name. And lo and behold, there were three stories about my grandfather. And they were not about his life as a businessman in my hometown. They were about the time my mother and my mother's brother and my grandmother went on a picnic to visit her brother, my grandmother's brother. And I thought, you know, that's that was the Facebook of the time. That was the thing that salted the community and made people connect to each other. And that that kind of um, the, the need for that is unabated right now. No, no I, I definitely agree. It's interesting you said it was sort of the Facebook at the time. What's different, though, is that in those newspaper organizations were layers of editors and principles that guided journalistic standards and ethics and uh, a real, real thirst to corroborate and to get to get reliable uh, uh, sources and on and on and on and on and on, and I mean, you. I mean, it was a it was a laborious, 
incredibly focused process that would which was aimed at getting as near the truth as possible, no matter what that truth was. At Facebook, on the other hand, is controlled by artificial intelligence. And even though they may change some of what how our newsfeed works going forward, a lot of our newsfeed has been determined by putting stuff into our newsfeeds that that more like what we want to see. So it makes it appear that everyone in our newsfeed agrees with us when, in fact, what should be happening is we should be getting all these d- diverse and, and different points of view so that we can really see good arguments on either side of any issue, whatever it might be. That that you know we saw that happening in cable news. We saw cable news becoming you know m- moving along and 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 them being biased. And then we saw the advent of social media that took it put that on steroids. But it is a it is a different world we live in today, isn't it, Jim? It is. It is. I'd say that there are a few common things though over the course of time. Uh, when I started in journalism, I worked for family-owned newspapers as well as chain-owned newspapers, and some of them were good, and some of them were really crappy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and it all had to do with the the sort of the will of the editors and the and the zeal with which the editors viewed their mission as being responsible for the truth in their community, and those that were diligent about it uh, made a better newspaper, and those yeah. that didn't. I recall the first story I ever had censored was at my hometown paper. I was covering a race riot back in the early 70s. And uh, um, I I went and I talked to all the riders. I just (laughs) crossed the police line, went and talked to them, wrote a great, I thought was a great story. The publisher killed it because he didn't want to inflame the white community in the town. Uh, Fast forward to the next newspaper. I did a piece about... uh, medical malpractice at the local hospital. The morning it was published, the publisher of the paper came in and threw the newspaper on my desk and said, that's the last story you'll do about malpractice in this town. Turns out he's on the board of the hospital that I wrote about. So there's there, there were lapses and there were bad places that journalism was not being well done. It's more ubiquitous now for lots of very complicated reasons. And it's less about the will of the editor and more about the the sort of temper of the times and the financial impact of ownership. It's, It's a very different world now. Social media has now passed TV news with young people for their top source of news and information. Amazing. Not surprised. But there are huge implications to that. When we come back, Jim spent time in Washington, D.C., covering really important international stories. And he saw the noise, the noise get get more loud (laughs) throughout his career. I want to talk a little bit about that when we get on the other side. We'll continue with Jim Asher, Pulitzer Prize winning editor and and a good friend. We'll see you after this. Subscribe for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, having a terrific conversation with an old friend, Jim Asher, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning editor and a former co- colleague of mine in the newspaper business. Jim, one of the things, you know, we were talking about how it really depended when you were at a newspaper on whether you had an editor and publisher that really supported your efforts journalistically. And that's certainly always been the case. There's always been some that are better than others. Uh, not, not uh, you know, there, there are so, so many great examples out there of wonderful publishers, and, and there are some, you know, there are some, there are some legacies that some I'm sure are not proud of. But the reality is, you had a lot of choices, though, and they were lots and lots of choices. And the world that we're in today, while the digital tsunami has sort of overcome newspapers and the business model has changed dramatically, and you don't have as many local resources, while all that has taken place, you've had big tech. Uh, gain more power. So you have more power and, you know, three or four different people that control these social media sites. So their political objectives can sort of play out and how the algorithms are written and so on and so on. So much more um, dynamic and uh, complicated place that we that we live in today. Uh, Alberto Ibargan, the former publisher and pr- president of El Nuevo Herald, Miami Herald, that you know well and I do as well. We're good friends as a result of the work we did together and and now his, he's the chairman of the Knight Foundation. He said there's so much noise on the national stage. The Knight Foundation doesn't even try to play there. That that the, where they're going to focus their attention is is on local. But you were in a world that you couldn't ignore <laughs> the noise. You 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 were in the noise. What amazes me, I, I read something the other day talking about the language that takes place in Washington D.C. You know, the language that is a very unique language. Talk about how hard it is to get to the truth in Washington. Yeah, well, Washington is, is, um, is a peculiar town. It is not America. <laughs> you know, first of all, it's populated by people whose, whose personal job is to keep in power. So they're going to, you know, put the best face on everything, regardless of your political power or position. Um, and then it's populated by the influence influencers, mostly lobbyists who are self-interested and attempting to, to reconfigure a, a legislation to benefit only themselves. There's a great example of, uh, I'm sure some of your readers know about the donut hole in Medicare, where you, you get coverage for a certain amount of time until you reach a certain threshold and then there's a big a big uh, suspension of and you got to start paying more money for your drugs well the the senator who proposed that and got it passed into law uh, left the Senate the next year and took a very large job with big pharma earning yeah. several hundred thousand dollars a year so that was his payoff for being for giving the pharmaceutical industry more pay. <clears throat> so there's this. There has been, for a very long time, the inability of the government and the journalists to free themselves from the grasp of this this very insulated, very un-American uh, city, which purports to be the seat of our democracy and. As I see it, over time, it is it got further and further and further away from the people, and further and further away from the issues that were affecting the people. Mm-hmm. The journalists who were 
who basically cover Washington, live in Washington, went to school in Washington, <laughs> or live in New York, went to school in New York, went to Ivy League, had Ivy League educations. They were they were basically insulated from life. So when the politicians said A, they covered A. When the when the lobbyists said B, they covered B. And they never said, well, who's right in all of that? <laughs> yeah. It's really it was really a struggle. And it and it also turned into to to be a um what when I was leading the Washington Bureau for McClatchy, uh, Barack Obama was president for most of that time. And um, we were doing some pretty aggressive reporting about his, his uh, uh, many of his policies, some of them on Syria, some of them on, on um, uh, his efforts to stop leaks. I got a call from the White House one afternoon, and uh, the fellow who was uh, who called me was one of the chief aides for the the president. And he started screaming at me and saying, "You're you can't write these kinds of stories. You have to write something better. You're you're damaging the president. You can't do this stuff." I said, "Sorry, man, <laughs> go away." But so even even the uh, the efforts of the of what the people in Washington would regard as the good administration, the Democratic administration, as opposed to the Bush administration or the, or the Trump administration, or the, you know, the, the, they were they were pushing their weight around too. So it, it was a very peculiar place, as I say, and it was not a it was not a place where you could just. You could, you could just do journalism without some consequence. And too many of the journalists in that town liked going to the parties that the politicians and lobbyists were putting on, enjoyed going to the embassies with the, that were having their Christmas parties, loved being able to go to the White House and talk to folks. And that created an atmosphere in which you gave up your independence because you would be barred from going to the White House if you didn't. Yeah, you didn't pull the leg, or you wouldn't get interviews, or you know, it was it was very it was not it was not uh, a good time to mm -hmm. be independent. Right. You know, Jim, it's interesting. This whole notion around searching for the truth has always been part of the call of journalism from the very beginning. I mean, it's always been there, and the notion of where there's lack of truth or misinformation or even fake news, you know, that, that there's always been some elements of that. But where we are today around those things, um, I, I I I did I picked those th th this particular Nietzsche, Nietzsche uh, 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 quote that sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. We see that more today than we've ever seen it before, and this whole notion of of what uh, Winston Churchill said about ignorance may deride it, may deride the, few, the, the truth. But we live in a world where there is proliferation of fake news and misinformation. What's your view on that? Well, <clears throat> um, part of it is, is uh, intentional. You know, some people 
want to label the news providers as the enemy, and therefore uh, you can disregard what's said. Some people want to um, uh, minimize the the negativeness of whatever story it is by saying it's just not true, it's fake news. Um, in a lot of ways, it's also, there's a great um, cartoon back in the old days, um, it's called Pogo, and one of the lines in it was, I've met the enemy and they are us. In a lot of ways, that's really true. The Pew, yeah. Pew Foundation did a study of readers, and it said that this is a few years old now, but I don't suspect it's gotten any better. Uh, it said that 70% of Americans were not active readers. Now, they didn't really define active readers, but I'd say that that meant most people don't read. And yeah. if, if you have a conversation with somebody, most people will say, hey, you know what I heard? And the word heard means they are, they didn't read it, you know? Yeah. Their friends yeah. told them, they heard it on the radio, they heard it on the television, they didn't listen particularly uh, uh, closely, so they got part of it, but not all of it. But anyway, it was a herd. So there's, there has been um, sort of a, a failure of both journalists to be aggressively truthful, educators to be educating citizens to be reading and so you end up in a situation where propaganda works and fake news is everywhere um, even when it isn't and it's it puts the democracy in a very peculiar and dangerous place i think and and it it's not it's we're not being faithful to the sacrifices of the past generations, we're not being faithful to the to the words of the Constitution. We're not being faithful to ourselves to be able to make our democracy vital enough to bring it to our children and to our grandchildren and to their children and grandchildren. Yeah, the whole the whole notion of getting informed. I remember. Early in my career, there was a readership study done of our newspaper, and it said that the average reading level of the newspaper reader was like eighth grade. And that's of someone who reads the newspaper. It made me obviously ask, what about people who don't read the newspaper? Sort of where are they? And where do they get their information? And I think with less people reading newspapers today and more people reading social media, that's where they're getting their news. And so, you know, the big issue around who do you trust now? Because you hear big institutions making mistakes or being biased. And then you, we have the issues around social media. How do people know what to trust? That's a major problem in my view. We'll come back and, con and continue that in the final segment with Jim Asher. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning editor and friend. We'll see you after this. Also, listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say Alexa. Open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend Jim Asher, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor, the Panama Papers. If you don't remember what that was, look it up. It's an incredible story, a collaboration, unprecedented collaboration. Maybe in the future, in future conversations, we'll talk more about that. But while he was in the Washington Bureau, he covered some incredibly important stories for 
uh, our industry and uh, and has really had a great reputation for uh, you know cutting through the muck and getting tr- to the the truth and and stories. But speaking of truth. Jim, my biggest concern, as I said before we went to break, is I, I don't know how you tell people what they should trust. You know, cable news, you know, the talking heads on cable news are all biased. Cable news does some good stories from time to time, I don't, whether it's Fox or CNN or any of them. Uh, New York Times still a very viable source. Uh, Washington Post still a viable source, but they at times – they they're 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 slanted politically, or they make unfortunate mistakes from time to time that cause credibility issues, and makes people say, I, I, "I told you we couldn't trust them." How do we sort through this? How does the average person know who to trust? Well, <clears throat> I think it's uh, what I do is I don't trust anybody, <laughs> and I say I need diversity of information. I don't necessarily want to rely on one person who I believe to be trustworthy, because as you say, even the most trustworthy people can make mistakes sometimes. And therefore, I wanna be sure that I'm not just relying on uh, serendipity to give me truthfulness. So so there is, there is a growing body of information being developed both by institutions and by nonprofit news organizations and by special interest groups. I, I get a newsletter from uh, a scientific organization that looks at uh, uh, DNA research. You know, so I'm getting inf- I'm getting information about new treatments for cancer and and Alzheimer's and all kinds of stuff long before anybody publishes a thing about it. It's all it's a little bit more scientific than I like, but it's it's not into so deep into the ways that you can't understand it. So my recommendation is to is to be thoughtful about what you want to know and then realize that only one place isn't going to give it to you and it isn't going to give it to you thoroughly. And if you're dependent on cable news of any stripe, realize that their their model has completely changed from being a provider of facts and breaking news or developing news to opining about breaking news and uh, and developing news. And that means that it's all dependent on the quality of the partisanship of the guys and the woman sitting in the, in in the studio. And it's, and it's just maddening to realize how, how much people, how many times people will misrepresent things because it, to to tell it truthfully, will alter their point of view or will undermine their point of view. They don't. They don't want their their illusions destroyed. That's that's the the. Are you familiar familiar with Isaac Saul and what he's doing with his newsletter called Tangle? I don't know that one. If you haven't looked it up, look it up. It's a it's a it's a very small group of journalists. They did work out of New York. They're working out of Philadelphia today. I've communicated with Isaac many times. Isaac um, is a non nonpartisan uh, non you know nonprofit that he's put together, and what he does is I don't know how he does it because he put these things out daily. They show what the right here's the news story that's in the news. And then they'll say what the right is saying, what the left is saying, and he goes to multiple sources, and then he'll give you his take. 
He's again nonpartisan. He gives you his take, but but man, it is really good. It it, it gives you, it gives you. It, first of all, it gives you awareness about what are right sources and what are left sources, and it, I, he will often quote quote what some political leaders are saying in, in both parties. Um, I got this is the one from yesterday. Uh, let's see it. Let me see. Let me get to. Let me, I had the wrong one pulled up. Hang on. Um, uh, one two days ago, energy independence and security in the Security Act. Um, uh, let's see. I got I went too deep on my my deal here. Today is the Indian Child Welfare Welfare Act, and he's going he breaks it down. But he he's it's topical driven, but it's really nicely done. And mm-hmm. I've talked about Tangle on my show several times. I really encourage people to take a look at it. You got, you've got a lot of newsletters now that are trying to be nonpartisan that will you know give you to aggregate the news for you, give you their take on it. You can you can dive into the links if you want to. We need more of that, don't we? We do. And there's another one that I use a lot, and that's Snopes, S-N-O-P-E-S. That's a a fact-checking operation. And they they seem to be pretty straightforward about making sure you get the straight skinny. It's unfortunate that they have to to be so vigorous, (laughs) who means that there's a lot of fact-checking that needs to be done, isn't there? It's also hard work. You know, you have yeah. to spend the time to figure it out. Now, once you've figured it out, you'll get a, a sea of things coming at you yeah. in a mile a minute. So, Well, I hope people enjoyed you, you and me just chatting about our love and passion for journalism and the truth. And I can't wait to have you back. I want to we'll drill down on what does a, a, a news process, news gathering process, look at an investigative n- journalism world that we need to do more of. Uh, Knight Ritter had a great team put together in Washington that McClatchy unfortunately disbanded. But we, there's a lot we can learn from that. Hopefully we can bring some of that back at some point. But this has been Jim Asher, from a former publisher. He's actually writing a book now. Uh, I'm assuming that we'll talk more about that in future shows as well. And he's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, editor and a friend. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, my friend. I enjoyed it much. Thanks. You bet. We're to the next time. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.